Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are way down in hell, <laughs> as infernal as it gets, practically. No, there's more infernal ahead of us, trust me. But this is in a particularly disgusting spot in Inferno. We are in the pit of the schismatics and those who sow scandal, that is, stumbling blocks in the path of the faithful. These people have been bloodily mangled by a demon who stands in the pit hacking them apart, although we never see that. We just see the hacked up souls walking along, spilling literally their guts out as they walk, some of them with various body pieces missing, hacked off. Somehow that all grow back together as they walk around this, the ninth circle of fraud, and then get healed and then get ripped apart again. We've seen several figures already in this pit. We've seen Muhammad, we've seen his son-in-law Ali, and we've seen Pierre da Medicina, as well as others whom they have mentioned. And now Pierre is off the stage and another guy comes up and wants to address our pilgrim. So let's get to it. Only nine lines, lines 103 through 111 of Canto 28. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. Here it is. And then a guy who'd had both one and the other of his hands cut off raised the stumps into the Stygian air so that blood befouled his face and cried out, You'll still remember Muska, too. The guy, alas, who said, A thing done can't be undone. For the Tuscan people, that was a really bad seed. And death to your kin, I spit back at him. At that, having heaped sorrow on sorrow, he walked off like someone gone insane with grief. Here's what I want to do in this episode of the podcast, Walking Dante. I want to talk about who this figure is, who is Mosca de Lamberti. Believe it or not, we already know who he is. Well, I know a little bit who he is. He's already come up in comedy. We want to talk about that. I want to talk about a couple things in this short passage. And then I want to ask one larger interpretive question that I actually don't have a full answer to. So let's get started. Before we go to the passage itself, let's just talk about Mosca de Lamberti. Mosca has already come up in comedy. If you remember, way back, way up with the gluttons in Canto 6, when Chaco sits up out of the mud and gives his pronouncements about the whites and the blacks and his predictions and prophecies and all that stuff and his weird stuff about two just men are wandering around Italy and all this kind of apocalyptic stuff. Dante the Pilgrim doesn't seem to focus on that apocalyptic stuff. Instead, the Pilgrim wants to know who else is down in hell. So when Chaco finishes, the Pilgrim says to him, and I'm starting at line 77 of Canto 6 in the Robert Hollander translation, I wish you would instruct me more. He's saying this to Chaco, granting me the gift of further speech. Ferranata and Tagiaio, who were so worthy. Jacopo, Rusticucci, Arrigo, and Mosca, and the rest whose minds were bent on doing good, 
tell me where they are and how they fare. For great desire presses me to learn whether heaven sweetens or hell embitters them. And we talked about this passage in terms of its gluttonous overtones, sweeten and embitters. Now we have come to the last of these figures. Ferenata we saw in Canto 10 with the heretics as he stood up out of his tomb. And boy, he has come up a lot in this podcast even since then. Teguiao and Jacopo Rustucci, they're in Canto 16 with the homosexuals. They're part of that group of three Florentine possibly homosexuals. <laughs> Remember, we talked about that endlessly in those podcast episodes. Possibly homosexuals in that pit. And here we come across the last of them, Mosca, who's down here with the schismatics and those who sow scandal amongst the faithful. The one that's left is Arrigo, or as we would say in English, Harry. Where in the world is Harry? And that is a great question for Dante. What happened to Harry? Because we've now come across the last of these figures in hell, and we never came across and will never come across any Arrigo as far as I can see or anyone else can ever see. Did Dante intend for Arrigo to appear somewhere? Did he intend for him to, in fact, appear here with Mosca somehow? Who is this Arrigo? Hmm, no clue. One of the enduring mysteries of comedy and of Inferno, for sure. What we do know is here is Mosca. Mosca was a Ghibelline, and in many ways, Mosca was responsible for the Florentine Civil War. We talked about this earlier, but let me go back and review it. In the early 1200s, long before Dante the poet himself is born... Buondelmonte, dei Buondelmonti, agrees to marry one of the Amadei daughters, a prominent Ghibelline family in Florence. He chooses in perhaps a public and certainly dishonorable way to diss the Amadei daughter and instead marry a Donati daughter, a Guelph, or Guelph, depending on how you currently pronounce that word, a rival clan. This is an unbelievable slap in the face of the Amadeus, and they vow revenge and get it. On Easter Sunday in the year 1215, they drag Buondelmonte de Buondelmonti from his horse, on the end of the Ponte Vecchio in Florence, the end that had a statue of Mars on it, they drag him down, they split him open, and Mosca himself plunges one of the lethal daggers into Buon del Monte. We should also note that it is said by chroniclers that this Mosca is the one who fabricated the whole plan to ambush Buon del Monte for dissing the Amadei family and instead going on to marry a Donati, a rival clan. 
and that Muscat is the one who fomented this entire discontent. This murder of Bondamante starts the Ghibelline and Guelph Wars in Florence. According to the chronicler Villani, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines were relatively minor factions, powerful warlord families, but still factions inside a larger split-up landscape of tribal leaders. This murder caused various clans to lump with the Amadei or lump with the Donati family, and thus it set the giant rift in motion. Interestingly, Villani has in his chronicle Mosca say this very line, a thing done can't be undone. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's interesting because Villani is writing after Dante, and Villani may be quoting Dante. He may have gotten his information from this very passage. In other words, this would be the moment in which Villani is relying on this poetic text for his historical analysis of the split in Florentine politics. Now, it's true. There was the Ghibelline and Guelph War over Buon del Monte's murder off his horse on Easter Sunday in 1215. True enough. But we don't actually know that Mosca said this, except right here in comedy. So the fiction gets recorded into the historical record and becomes further part of the historical discourse. Okay, let's go on and talk about the passage itself. Dante the Pilgrim has been talking to various figures in this pit, or more like they've been talking at him. He's asked a couple questions, but really they've been talking mostly just at him. Pierre da Medicina has finished whatever he's done, warning various figures about their coming destruction and also pulling Curio over and holding his face so that you can see his tongue is cut out. And he's now passed on. And this guy comes up and he's got both his hands cut off. Again, I just call your attention to the fact that all of the hackings are different here. Muhammad was disemboweled. Ali had his head cut in half. Uh, it's different, each one. And we are encouraged in some way to think about the symbolism here. If Mosca doesn't have either hand, is that a comment on the Ghibelline Gulf War? That is, both hands have now been slaughtered, have been mutilated, so both sides are gone. Is that the comment that's being made here and why his punishment fits his crime? Interesting, don't actually know that, but I can say that you should note how physical the damned have become. Remember up amongst the lustful, they seemed, uh, what do I want to say, almost spirit-like, blowing out there on the wind. Well, they were spirits, but you know what I mean? They seemed like wisps of smoke blowing around on the wind. Or amongst the gluttons, there's the pilgrim kind of stepping amongst them and in them and through them, and it's gross, and Chaco sits up out of the muck. I mean, they seemed less embodied. And as we have gone down hell, you will notice that the damned seem to get more and more bodied. We This goes back to our discussion of the body in pain. It's just interesting how bodied they are because, I mean, listen, how can this guy, okay, he's got his hands cut off, fair enough, 
But how can they then be bleeding? And how can the blood from his stumpy hands smear his face? How is that possible? It seems inordinately physical. There may be an answer here. Here's one. When we get down this far, there is such an emphasis on the blood. Every, you know, everybody's bloody in some way. Pierre de Medicina had his throat slit and it was still stained with blood. This guy, the blood from his stumps are, is staining his face. There's so much emphasis here on the blood. Is this a parodic reference to Christ's blood? Let me explain. In the Christian theology, the death of Christ and the shedding of his blood is supposed to be the sacrifice that saves the world and is, in fact, meant to unify the world. Let's go to St. Paul's claim. Since by man came death, so by man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all all be made alive. There is this emphasis right there in Pauline theology of a kind of universal unity. I realize this runs contrary to the Christian tradition, but it seems in that verse that Paul is arguing for universal salvation. For as in Adam all dies, so in Christ shall all be made all, all, all be made alive. So there's a way in which Christ's sacrifice in Christian theology is seen as a unification, a unification of salvation. His blood is that which unifies the fallen world. And this, the pit of the schismatics, is so darn bloody, so unbelievably filled with bloody figures. Are we in an ironic parody of lifeblood that does not unify, but that is spilt for no other reason than tribalism and is the mark of that tribalism? Or is there something about lifeblood here? After all, in medieval medicine, as Dante would know it, the blood is the life force. They think of the heart as the repository. It, it's stored in the heart and it's pumped out through the body until it goes into smaller and smaller capillary units. They don't know these new words necessarily, but smaller and smaller capillary units and then kind of evaporates ultimately out of the skin. This is at least how they see. They don't understand anything about circulation, but they do know that the blood must be a life force. And is that what's going on here? That is the life force is spilled. So there is something in this pit of tribalism that is contrary to life itself. There's a way in which tribalism stymies life itself, or is it a parodic theological reference to Christ's blood? I don't know. I can just tell you it's a very bloody pit, and I could come up with some reasons for that. This guy cries out, you still remember Mosca too, the guy, alas, who said, a thing done can't be undone. This is a really difficult sentence. We'll want to talk about it in a minute. For the Tuscan people, that was the really bad seed. And we've talked about this. It sparked the civil war ultimately with the murder of Juan del Monte. The phrase is actually, if I wanted to really translate it word for word, it's something done has a head. What does that mean? Something 
Don has a head. I have, of course, brought it off as a thing done can't be undone. But let's go back to that really literal translation. Something done has a head. Does that mean that if you strike off the head, that's the way to really handle a situation? So in killing Buondelmonte, if you strike off the head, you can get rid of the whole problem. In Vallani's Chronicle of the Troubles of Florence, that's how he reads this line. That is, go ahead, kill him. That's what Villani says. By that, he meant kill him. It's a little bit weird. I don't know that Juan Del Monte is necessarily a head of anything, a top cap of anything. So it's a little bit weird, but it's certainly the way Villani interprets the line is by striking off the head, you've basically done the deed itself. Um, or is this oily and elliptical on purpose? Um, something done has a head. If so, if it's oily but pithy but elliptical, then we are called back to Curio because Curio also made in the previous episode of this podcast and just the previous passage an elliptical, oily statement when he said, you know, the only thing lethal to somebody ready is delay. Again, pithy, oily, a little bit elliptical. It seems like both these guys, Curio, who doesn't speak for himself, Pierre speaks for him, and in this case, Mosca, who does speak for himself, both of them kind of want to have it both ways. They want to say something that's very very uh, difficult to interpret, and yet that gives you the go-ahead. So by saying to Caesar, hey, you know, the only thing that's lethal for a guy who's ready is delay, you're not really saying cross the Rubicon. You're just kind of hedging your bets. This is really, I think, psychologically true of schismatics, of people who take great delight in tribalism. They don't want to say anything that could get them blamed for your flame-filled actions. Instead, they want to say something that kind of spurs you on and gives you permission for the violence ahead without actually saying, just go do it. They kind of want to slip under. Man, all I can think of is 80 million television vision pundits who want to slip in incendiary talk in an elliptical way, who want to goad people on to violence. But when then the violence happens, they can say, what did I say? I said something done has a head. You know, I didn't I didn't tell them to go ahead and stab Juan Del Monte on Ponte Vecchio. I just, I just made an aphorism. I made a pithy statement. Both Curio and Mosca are connected in this way, in that the center of their speeches is this elliptical phrase that can be a little bit difficult to interpret, but we know, in fact, it leads to further political strife. Dante then responds, and death to your kin. Dante, in other words, continues the political strife. That Mosca is someone who caused mass deaths across Tuscany, and especially in Florence, is true. 
But Dante then is going on with the tribalism. The pilgrim says, death to your kin. So the pilgrim is continuing the cycle of violence born out of tribalism in the pouch. I want everybody connected to you to die. And in fact, that's basically what happens to the Lamberti clan. They're ultimately banished from Florence and basically they end up all on the run and dead. So this does come true. It's often read that the pilgrim is learning to have less sympathy for the damned because it ends having heap sorrow on sorrow. He walked off like someone gone insane with grief. And the pilgrim is slowly learning that the damned don't deserve his pity. But I'm not sure. And I'm not sure because we have to get to it, because of something that's going to happen in the opening of Canto 29. And when we get there, I'll call your attention back to this bit. But for right now, what I can say is the pilgrim seems complicit in the ongoing political tribal strife. Here's my interpretive question that I don't actually have an answer to. Why is the ninth evil pouch, the ninth of the Malabolja of fraud, why is it so crowded? We have seen Mohammed. We have seen his son-in-law, Ali. We have seen Pierre da Medicina. We have seen Curio. Now we've seen Mosca. Of these, Mohammed, Pierre, and Mosca have spoken. Curio was spoken for by Pierre. And in addition to that, we've heard reference to so many people, to Fra Dolcino, to Guido and Agnolello, to the one-eyed tyrant who is going to throw them overboard in a stone-weighted sack. This is a crowded pit. There are lots of speakers here, not just lots of people, but lots of speakers. And there's even yet one more speaker ahead of us. Think about Ulysses' pit. Okay, sure, there's Diomedes beside him. And sure, there are lots of flames down there because we're told they're like the fireflies that a peasant sees in a valley. But it doesn't seem this crowded. Sure, when you get to the hoarders and wasters way up there with the avaricious, remember rolling their rocks around? Sure, that was a crowded pit. They're rolling their rocks, bashing their rocks into each other. Okay, right, totally crowded. They weren't all talking. They were just rolling their boulders and smashing them into each other. Uh, later, when we get to those violent against others and the property of others, those sunk in the river of blood up to their foreheads, top of their heads, necks, chests, ankles, those people in the boiling river of blood. Yes, there's a lot of people, not so many speakers. And so it doesn't seem as chaotic as this. Again, when we get to the suicides, more speakers, two different suicides, and then guys who plundered personal property, who did violence dramatically to their own personal property. So yes, a little more crowded, a few more speakers in that pit. But still and nonetheless, this pit just seems unbelievably crowded. Why? I don't have an answer to this, but I'm going to pose some things. Here we are with the schismatics, and this pit is schismed. 
Is that a verb? I don't think so. Is schismed with characters. It's broken apart one character and another and another and another, much like tribalism. And in fact, it falls into, what do I want to say, tribal passages in which this figure speaks, this figure speaks, this figure speaks, this figure speaks. It falls into the kind of cacophony that tribalism creates. Is that part of what's going on here? If so, it's very meta-literary, it's very Dante-esque, and it's very smart. It's also a little disorienting. Well, tribalism, I guess, is disorienting. Schismatics are disorienting. People who throw stumbling blocks in the path of the faithful are disorienting. Is that the point of the pit? Because it's just so crowded. Or when Virgil explains why he's taking Dante on this journey. Remember, Muhammad says, who are you? And are you just stopping here on a sightseeing tour to worse torments that your guilt is driving you on? And Virgil says, no, I'm the dead one. He's still alive. And everybody stops in wonder. And Virgil explains the point of the journey. The point of the journey is so that the pilgrim will get, perceive, understand the full scope of things. Well, isn't it interesting that here we have a statement of the renewed purpose of comedy, the full scope of things, and the pit is very crowded. In fact, ahead of us, the poem is going to get very crowded with ideas, very crowded. When we get up to Purgatorio, long discourses on embryology, long discourses on the formation of the soul, we are going to get into a very crowded poem crowded with people yes but more crowded with ideas and is this the first glimpse of it a crowded pit in which Virgil tells us the point of the journey is to perceive to see the full scope of things or is this pit so crowded because it's very close to the reality of Dante's day. Dante lived in a world driven by tribalism, split apart by civil war. He himself took part in some of those battles. He himself was complicit in the civil wars. He himself, in fact, was part of the exiling of his own good friend and poetic rival Guido Cavalcante. So, is that part of it? But this is really close to Dante's reality. And in fact, the reality of this is showing us that we're very close to the bone with Dante. So close to the bone that he himself seems to wish more tribal massacre in his statement, death to your kin. In other words, we are right down near the morrow of how Dante is alive right now. We are right down near the truth of himself. And remember when I told you that Dante is an idealist and ambivalence is the product of idealism because you have to hold these ideals, but you know you can't hold them. And so you end up in this weird state of ambivalence. And the emotional result of that ambivalence in the face of idealism is rage. What happens right here? death to your kin. The rage is expressed right here after we've come past Curio and the destruction of the Roman Republic in favor of the empire, which Dante doesn't like, and yet there is no birth of Jesus without the empire, yet the empire is an outgrowth <laughs> of the Republic, and yet the empire is in many ways the kind of enlightened leadership, especially in Virgil's notion of Augustus Caesar, a kind of enlightened leadership that Dante 
pines for on the political landscape. So that ambivalence born out of his own idealism finally here again erupts in rage as it has over and over again in Inferno. We seem to be getting very close to the bone. We're going to get closer in the next passage in this very ninth bit. We're going to finish off the ninth of the evil pouches of the Malabolja of fraud in the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. You don't want to miss it because it ends in a place that I don't think I could predict, even if I tried to predict how this thing is going to end up, because it ends up, uh, yes, of course, in poetry and in concepts of poetry and what poetry should be doing and about. Of course, that's where it's going to end. And yet, I couldn't have predicted this bloody mutilated pit would ever end up in a discussion of poetics. And yet, that's where we're headed. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, even a simple rating like doing great or having a lot of fun. Man, it does a lot for me in the analytics. Thank you for that. I can't wait to get to the next passage. I've been waiting for it for weeks. I am loaded and ready to go. So come back because we got to finish off the schismatics and those who throw stumbling blocks in front of the faithful on the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon.